Support for this podcast and the following message come from Wise, the app that makes managing your money in different currencies easy. With Wise, you can send and spend money internationally at the mid-market exchange rate. No guesswork and no hidden fees. Learn more about how Wise could work for you at wise.com. This is State of Ukraine. I'm Steve Inskeep with NPR's best reporting on a war that is changing the world. Our colleague Nate Brott ran into a guy in Kiev. He was a fellow American volunteering for service in Ukraine, and they sent the man to help pick up bodies left strewn on the streets in Bucha. He had photographs. Ukrainian authorities say they recovered bodies of more than 400 civilians after Russia retreated from the capital region in recent days. Russia's foreign minister, for the record, calls all the evidence fake. What's the world make of the killings? Ambassador Pierre Richard Prosper has some thoughts. He is a one-time prosecutor for a United Nations tribunal in Rwanda. And he spoke with Rachel Martin. Based on your experience, in your estimation, has Russia committed war crimes in Ukraine? Well, it would appear that they have. Based on the reports that we are seeing, we're seeing effectively the unlawful killing of civilians. We're seeing potential acts of, uh, of torture, rape, all of the things that are outlawed by the uh, Geneva Conventions and the laws of war. Well, let me ask you, Spain's prime minister said what's happening in Ukraine may amount to genocide. Poland's prime minister described it that way, too. That is a very specific term that carries legal weight and attached responsibilities. Is that the right term to use here? Well, it, it does. It carries significant weight because under the Genocide Convention, nations are obligated to to act. But I think right now uh, we should not necessarily be focusing on on labels because the determination is a is a is a process and uh, requires deeper analysis to, to to find genocide. But what we need to be doing is really focusing on the actions themselves. It is clear that atrocities are being committed. It is clear that based on the reports that there are violations of the laws of war, and that should be sufficient for for nations, not just the West, not just the United States but the entire international community to act. But I think what's really important is what you are doing here and what we are doing is we need to continue to shine a light on the actions of the Russian government because we have to make sure that this is undeniable. And the more that we can get the, the global community, and I'm talking Europe, United States, Asia, Africa, Latin America, everyone to condemn and put pressure on, on, on the Russian government, hopefully it will begin to, to curb, not only curb the action, but, but promote an action of accountability. Hopefully it will, it will promote uh, dissent from within where the Russian people themselves see that, that there is a problem. But it's such a messaging war, right? I mean, we've seen these hideous images coming out of the town of Bucha outside of Kiev, and Russia's foreign minister, Lavrov, is already saying that this was a Ukrainian provocation. How do you hold Russia accountable by standards and a process that the country is likely to claim is illegitimate? Well, we've been here before. I mean, I think with every war, we've heard this exact same rhetoric. But I think what we have here is we have the fact that the the, the, the media is present. We have uh, NGOs, uh, 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 human rights groups that are that are present. Um, I'm sure that the United States and other nations have have detailed satellite imagery and other information that that could be put forth to the the relevant bodies. So I I think we we can expect the 
this rhetoric and or, or propaganda from the Russian government, but I think it, it's it's time for for a objective analysis and action by by the global community. Former war crimes prosecutor Ambassador Pierre Richard Prosper, thank you so much for your time and perspective this morning. We appreciate it. Great, thank you for having me. Some nations would like to avoid choosing between the United States and Russia, and they include Saudi Arabia, one of the world's largest oil producers. The U.S. and Saudis are traditional allies, now with deeply strained relations, and the Saudis recently made a symbolically important gesture. The Wall Street Journal reports they are considering selling oil to China for Chinese currency. For generations, global oil sales have almost all been made in U.S. dollars, which is a sign of American power. That news was the start of our talk with Giorgio Cafiero, who is CEO of Gulf State Analytics, a geopolitical risk consultancy firm. I think there's good reason to think that this is more about signaling and messaging and that it's very possible that the Saudis are not seriously considering doing this, but this is about sort of gaining leverage and letting Washington know that Saudi Arabia has other options Well, the United States looks at Saudi Arabia, it seems to me, and we hear about the downsides from the U.S. point of view, that they're an absolute monarchy, that they've notably killed journalists, that they have been a source of cheap oil and have helped stabilize the world oil markets, but they sometimes decline to intervene as they seem to be doing now. What are the benefits to the United States of a continued close relationship with the Saudis? Well, beyond oil, there's also other factors, too. The Biden administration is obviously pursuing efforts aimed at reviving the 2015 nuclear accord that Trump unilaterally pulled the United States out of. We don't know if the talks in Vienna will result in the JCPOA uh, being revived or not. But in any event, the United States is going to continue to see Iran and its regional activities as a big threat to U.S. interests in the Middle East. And the United States is going to continue to see Saudi Arabia and other GCC states as bulwarks against the expansion and consolidation of Iranian influence in the Arab world. And I think that's an important factor we have to keep in mind. Were you surprised that a good number of countries in that region have not been as supportive of the United States as the U.S. may have wanted. The UAE abstained rather than voting with the United States at the United Nations. Israel, of course, has tried to take a kind of special position between the United States and Russia and has not joined the sanctions in the way that the U.S. might have liked. We could give other examples. I was actually not that surprised. And for a number of years, we have seen the UAE in particular align more closely with the agendas of Russia and China at the expense of uh, U.S. foreign policy interests. We saw this in Libya, Syria, countries such as Saudi Arabia and the UAE value their partnerships with Russia. And in recent years, that's been increasingly so. When the dust eventually settles in Ukraine, Abu Dhabi and Riyadh are going to want to continue working with Moscow. This cooperation uh, takes place across many domains from energy, investment, defense, and they're determined to make sure that they don't respond to the war in Ukraine in ways that seriously antagonize the Russian leadership. 
Could the Gulf countries significantly dampen the effect of Western sanctions since they're not participating and even want to deepen ties with Russia? The UAE and some other uh, partners of the United States and the Middle East have not been joining this effort to squeeze the Russians. Since the sanctions began being implemented, many Russian oligarchs and others who are close to Putin have been coming to Dubai to park their wealth. And yes, to answer your question, uh, the UAE is an enabler of Russia and seems to be a country that is helping the Russians bypass these Western sanctions. Is there anything the United States can do to cajole, persuade, or threaten the Gulf states to take a different approach? Certainly there are things that the U.S. could do uh, to that end. However, I think the U.S., very much values its partnerships with the Gulf, despite these sources of frustration and deep disappointment. The U.S. depends on these countries in many different ways, and I think the Biden administration is keen to avoid taking actions that would excessively antagonize them. After all, in 2020, the United Arab Emirates normalized diplomatic relations with Israel via the Abraham Accords. And after the UAE did that, three other Arab states followed suit. Abu Dhabi has a lot of leverage in Washington. The Emirati leadership knows this, and I think that's going to enable the UAE to get away with doing a number of things that don't sit well with Washington. Giorgio Cafiero is CEO of Gulf State Analytics, a Washington, D.C.-based geopolitical risk consultancy firm. Thanks so much. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you. And this is State of Ukraine from NPR News, NPR's best reporting on a war that is changing the world. Look for regular updates in this feed. Ziad Butch produced and Kelly Dickens edited. I'm Stephen Skeep. This message comes from NPR sponsor Greenlight. Want to teach your kids financial literacy? With Greenlight, kids and teens use a debit card of their own, while parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and savings in the app. Get your first month free at greenlight.com NPR. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor Lisa in collaboration with West Elm. Discover the new natural hybrid mattress, expertly crafted from natural latex and certified safe foams, designed with your health and the planet in mind. Visit leesa.com to learn more. Humans are kind of overrated. Over on Shortwave, a science podcast, we're only kind of kidding. We're bringing you the wondrous world of animal science to your daily life. From queer animal love stories to songbird memories, we're showing you how critter knowledge informs human science. Listen now to Shortwave, a podcast from NPR.